Well, sometimes you don't really want the worship band to stop, do you? I mean, I, I felt like they just carry on for another five or six or seven or eight songs. I thought that was great today. Lovely to see you today. We're, of course, in the midst of what we're calling Vision Month. And um, as such, we're seeking to understand from God what it is that, that He wants to do in giving us a compelling vision for our life. Often you'll come to churches like Apex and you'll hear as part of the vision declaration things that we're going to do together programmatically. There'll be things that churches are putting on for the congregation. There'll be things that the congregation are going to do together for the community. And there's every good reason to see that that's a great thing and a good gift. But here at Apex, we tend not to be as programmatic as that, because what we want to do, of course, is we want to learn what it means to grow as disciples interdependent upon one another, learning what it is that God has given us individually and collectively to do, and then asking Him for the application. And so, what you'll hear as part of this month and over many opportunities in the coming weeks and years is a pattern of discipleship and a process that you can be involved in. So Jason gave us opportunities to be involved in the process of training, which is all caught up in the Rosonde learning community. That process is intended to equip us, is intended to give us the tools, give us some sense, some, some ideas of how we can take the things that Jesus has called us to do and apply them specifically in our own lives and in the lives of our given intimate community. That might be a group of friends, that might be your household, it might be as part of the network of house churches and households that Apex is made up of. Whatever it is, it is, of course, enormously important that we understand the nature of, of, of vision, the importance, what it is that vision does, and the person, of course, who leads us out in that. And over these last few weeks, we've looked at how vision captures our hearts in a specific kind of way to give us the disciplines necessary to see the things fulfilled in our life that God wants to see fulfilled. If we hear from the Scriptures that without a revelation, the people cast off restraint, then, of course, the implicit message there in Proverbs 29 and many other parts of the Old and New Testament, the implicit message is that with the revelation, the people take on constraint. In other words, they take on the disciplines that the vision, as it were, stirs to life within us. And then we looked at the person of Jesus, the person whose life, if you like, is the very epitome, the very image, the very, the very clearest of pictures of what it means to live a vision-captured life. For the joy set before him, the Scriptures tell us, Jesus endured the, the shame, the challenge, the trial of the cross. That same, that same Jesus is the one, of course, who gives us our vision and helps us not only to capture the joy that is before us, which is all caught up in his kingdom, but 
enables us with the disciplines that, that he enlivens within us to overcome the challenges, the difficulties along the way to seeing that vision fulfilled. And then last week, we heard within that same group of passages in Hebrews 12 and 13 that speak about Jesus and our call to fix our eyes on him. That same group of passages says this, that we should go out to where Jesus is outside the camp. The journey of vision will take us from the center of our spiritual experience, our, our given community, towards the edge. The writer to the Hebrews says, we have no abiding city here. We have nothing that, that we can cling to that will be of substance in the kingdom to come. And so we should journey to where Jesus is outside the camp. And of course, the, the picture of this is not only the historical fact of Jesus being crucified outside of the city of Jerusalem, but this metaphor, this picture that's, that's painted for us throughout the Old Testament and then into the New Testament of the place of being outside of the protective gathering of the people of God is the place where Jesus goes. Outside the camp was the place where the unclean lived. Outside the camp was the place where the unprotected lived. Outside the camp in Jerusalem near the Valley of Hinon was the place where over the centuries the people of God threw their rubbish and poured out their waste and all of their garbage and of course with the compaction of years the heat below all of that waste began to rise and in time fires would burn at the very base of this rubbish dump there in the valley of Hinon and it became called Gehenna. It became called the place that imaged, that, that manifested, that, that symbolized the lost world without God. Hades in Greek became Gehenna in Hebrew and it was right at the gates of Gehenna that Jesus died. Jesus set up a welcome lounge at the doorway to hell saying this doesn't have to be your destination. Amen. Your destination is not alienation. Your destination is not desperation. Your destination is not to be lost forever symbolized by the burning fires of Gehenna. Your destination is an empty cross and an empty grave. Jesus died that the penalties that would lead us to ultimate, final and full alienation from God. He took the very penalty of that alienation which of course is physical and spiritual death and then demonstrated that all of that had been paid for by bursting from the grave three days later the grave is now empty and it's right there 
at the door of hell. And so Jesus demonstrates that this is what it is that he's done for us. And the writer to the Hebrews says, let us therefore go to him outside the city. Why? Because he's recruiting us as partners. He's recruiting us as participants in the great redemptive story of history. God wants us right there at the very gates of hell where the fires can be smelt on the breeze. And he wants us with him to invite the lost, the lonely, the broken to come not to the place of desolation and death, but come to the place of redemption and life. That's the big vision that Jesus offers us. And it's really important that we, that we understand how this works. It's, it's working in the lives of particular people. It's working in the lives of individuals. It's working in the lives of the people that you're rubbing shoulders with daily. The Scriptures say on a number of occasions that God is close to the brokenhearted. The Scriptures speak about the omnipresence of God. By His Spirit, of course, He's able to be in every place at every time because He is the Creator of all things. But Jesus manifests His presence. He is present by His Spirit everywhere, but He manifests His presence in particular places and on particular occasions. One of the places that He manifests His presence is when we gather together in His name according to His identity. His identity, of course, is to observe what it is the Father is doing and in doing what it is that He sees the Father doing, bring glory to the Father. Jesus is wanting to worship the Father in spirit and truth. And so the ways in which Jesus will manifest His presence is as we gather to pray, as we do in the mornings, both in-house and online at 8.30. On Tuesday nights when we're beginning to sense this wonderful, intimate gathering, this time of flowing prayer and worship that lasts long enough for people to come and go as they wish, children and adults together on a Tuesday night from 6.30 following. These are times when Jesus manifests His presence. But the writer to the Hebrews says, Jesus is manifesting His presence someplace else as well. Go out to Him where He is, outside the city. He's manifesting His presence there because God is close to the brokenhearted. Tom Hanks uh, played that marvelous role of, um, I don't know why I keep forgetting this guy's name because he's a delightful guy. The guy who, uh, Mr. Rogers, yeah, that's right. So that, I forget what the name of the film was, but it was panned by the critics, but that's just because it was marvelous. Um, but this beautiful movie about uh, Mr. Rogers uh, that Tom Hanks, and it may be, I think, I've seen lots of Tom Hanks movies and I'm a bit of a movie aficionado, I'd say it's one of his better roles. And here he is, as it were, living out the, the life of this, this man, Mr. Rogers, that people find quite conflicting because he seems so out of the ordinary. 
And here is this man who the, the world around him want to understand to some measure and a journalist comes and seeks to observe his life expecting to find the gaps in the armor, the shadow within the light, the story behind the story. And so with his cynical eye comes to tell the story of Mr. Rogers. But of course, what he discovers is that he's in the presence of a living saint. Here is this delightful man who seems so odd in the eyes of everyone else, who genuinely prays for every person that asks him every day on his knees. Who knows how many hundreds of names he prays for. Here this person who genuinely lives this life of service and love to the people around him. The journalist begins to find his heart warmed by the presence of of Mr. Rogers and so he invites him more and more into his life and into his family. His, His father, the journalist's father, is dying. They go and visit the father because the father of the journalist would love to meet Mr. Rogers. A bit like, I guess, meeting Mother Teresa or something like that. And as they complete their time, Mr. Rogers, played by Tom Hanks, just lingers and lets everyone else leave. And he just leans over and whispers in the man's ear. As they're walking up the path away from the house, the journalist turns to Mr. Rogers and says, what did you say to my father? He said, I can tell that you're in real pain. And so will you pray for me? Because someone who's in that much pain must be close to God. It's fascinating, isn't it? Entirely different way of viewing the world. A kind of an upside down vision of reality. But this is the vision of reality that Jesus wants us to gain. He wants us to gather that this is the way that he functions. He expects to see his father operating and working in the lost, in the lonely, in the tragic and the broken. Luke chapter 7 and verse 36 is where I'd like us to go this morning. I'll read you the entire story because I think it's important that we get all of it. Luke 7 and verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume onto them. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, 
he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denario, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not pour oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's a beautiful story related in various gospels and is in many ways reflected in other stories that are similar of how Jesus interacts with those who feel on the margins, those who feel most alienated. It's perhaps important to just understand some of the ways in which the story is presupposing knowledge of the situation. The home of a wealthy person would be built into a square residence with an open courtyard in the middle. Often, Amongst the wealthy, there would be a fountain in the middle that acted as a, a kind of air conditioning unit. And so this open area would be the area where guests would be welcomed for meals. At the time of Jesus, following the Roman pattern, people would lean on their left elbow, maybe on a low couch or on usually just a, a cushion, and leaning on their left elbow, they would be able to eat from a slightly raised table just off the floor or maybe uh, food that's arranged on the floor that's been cleaned and prepared with their right hand and they would be able to pass food to other people around that eating area. And so fanning out around the table would be the feet of those who were gathered to eat. The courtyard would be something that of course would be open to visitors. And as so often in the life of Jesus, people would hear that he's in town. People would hear that he's in a particular residence, a particular place, and they would flock to hear what it was that he would say. Perhaps there would be a miracle. The woman comes to the home of Simon. In the Greek text, it says, she is a woman of the city a sinner. 
Maybe in our popular parlance, it would be a woman of the night. She is a person who is, of course, rejected by people like Simon, who, because of their religious sensibilities, would not only reject her as a person, but wouldn't want any exchange or connection with her at all, lest they become contaminated. Because the Pharisees believed that when the clean touched the unclean, the clean became unclean. But Jesus believed that when the unclean touched the clean, the unclean became clean. That's a big difference. And so here's Jesus in a situation where the religious elite with their structures and their systems, their, their beliefs and their bigotries are judging the woman. But perhaps we should ask ourselves, what's going on in the life of this woman? Of course, it's important for all of us individually to ask ourselves, what have we done? What have we done that's, that's helpful, that's generous, that's kind, that reflects the heart of God? What have we done that is perhaps not reflecting the heart of God? That's a good thing to do. But when we're looking at someone else, rather than asking what have they done, perhaps we should ask this question, what happened to them? What happened to them? This lady, perhaps like many others who were driven to the circumstances of her life, was a person more than likely who was a widow. A widow without the means of family support. No one chooses the life that this woman was leading. But out of desperation, perhaps to feed her family, this was the only way that she could see forward. Was there another way? Maybe, I don't know. But you see, more often than not, in these circumstances, tragedy and torment has been the story, rather than just outright rebellion. But Simon couldn't see that, because Simon was afraid of what might happen if he was contaminated. Simon was afraid of the reputation that he might have with a person like this in his home. Simon would not be the friend of sinners. As a sinner myself, I'm glad I've got a friend. I'm so glad I've got a friend. Someone who meets me and says, welcome. And if he'll befriend me, maybe he'll befriend others through me. Jesus, of course, is close to the brokenhearted. That's why they want to be near him. That's why they want to come and connect with him. But notice that the woman doesn't have any words to say. 
Do you notice that? Do you notice that, that this woman coming to Jesus is articulating the longing of, our, of her heart, but she doesn't know how to put it into words. Jesus, in speaking to Simon, makes it absolutely clear that he understands the prayer that she's offering, a prayer that is, that is eloquent in tears and service and the washing of his feet and the anointing with perfume. Eloquent prayer, but not prayer described in words and sentences of phrases. But it's a remarkable thing, isn't it, that Jesus can hear that prayer. Jesus can hear this woman because he sees this woman. And the first thing that he says to Simon is a word that he speaks to us when we consider making the journey to where he is outside the camp. Do you remember the first thing that he asks Simon? He says, do you see this woman? Do you see her? In other words, are you prepared to take a moment just to observe this life, a life that would be beset by struggle and pain, challenge and difficulty, a life different from our own, a life that needs compassion and not condemnation if it's to find salvation. Do you see her? Uh, it's an interesting thing. I was listening to uh, one of the doctors in the congregation telling me about some work that he's doing in the addicted community and, and how a couple of people came to see him over these last couple of weeks and when they came into the room, they just burst into tears. And my question to myself was this. I wonder whether that was just because they sensed Jesus there. Here's the woman, she bursts into tears because she knows with great relief that there's a welcome here. I can remember a man when I worked in the inner city in London in a community called Brixton which was very under-resourced, a real place of struggle and difficulty. I can remember a man called Bob who would come and sit on the very, very back chair in the building. I mean, he was basically not even in the worship area. He was as far away as he could be whilst still being in the building. And he would come in and he would weep through the whole service. He'd never stand up during the songs. He'd never look up during the sermons. He would just weep. And then before we finished the last song, he'd leave. Every week, he was there on the back seat. And every week, I desperately wanted to get to him, but he was always gone. 
And then on one occasion, I had another member of the team preaching. And so I thought, I'm going to get him this week. And so before the last song began, I began to move. And he looked up with a slight panic in his eyes and tried to get out of the building. But I caught up with him. He was still in emotional shreds. and He'd been coming like that for many weeks. It was now months. He introduced himself. His name was Bob. And I said, I noticed, Bob, that you're often quite upset each week. He says, I'm an alcoholic. I'm trying to stay sober, and I have been sober for several months now. But when I was on the drink, I would beat my wife mercilessly. Now, at that moment, I had to make a choice. Because at that moment, the repulsion in me began to rise up. I stayed with it. It felt like holding on to a piece of barbed wire. I said, how's your wife now? He said, well, she's glad that she doesn't have to fear when I come home from the pub now. But I don't think she'll ever forgive me. I said, that may be the case, and that may be fully understandable, Bob. But Jesus forgives you. Well, he burst into tears again and came back into the, into the church building. We prayed together. We prayed together many, many, many times over the coming months. And little by little, he began to believe that God had forgiven him. And then one day, he invited me to his home for lunch after church when I met his wife. She was deeply scarred by the experience and probably never really recovered, but began to believe that the change that she saw in her husband was real. And Bob, now gone to be with the Lord, of course, began to live a different life, a life of service, a life not of rage, but of grace. Maybe you have similar stories of other circumstances where you find the thing that the person is describing to you repellent because of your background, your training, your religious teaching. 
It may be that when you hear of people's lives, you find it impossible to imagine yourself in those circumstances. But if we ask ourselves, what happened to them? If we ask ourselves, where is Jesus in the midst of this? If we ask ourselves, Lord, in this person's brokenheartedness, will you reveal yourself to me? Then I think you begin a different journey of discovery. Now, it's one thing to go to be with Jesus on the edge. It's another thing entirely to journey with Jesus, with the people from the margin, back to the center. And this morning, to complete the picture, I want to just allude to another passage, a passage that's deeply familiar to us, the parable of the lost son, further on in Luke's Gospel, chapter 15. And I want to read to you from the beginning of that chapter that says this, chapter 15, verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. Again, just in common parlance, the people whose lives caused them to be rejected by the mainstream, the thugs and the criminals were all gathering around Jesus to hear what he had to say. Verse 2, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then, of course, Jesus gives a series of stories, the last of which is perhaps the most famous story Jesus told in the entire Bible, the, the story that we call the story of the prodigal son. And we all know the story, the, the story of the younger son who wants to go it alone. And so he goes to his father and says, give me my inheritance now. He's the younger of the two. He'll get a third of the inheritance. The older brother will get two thirds. And off he goes and spends all of the money. And in a moment of realization, a moment when perhaps he's not able to say what it is that he needs to say, he realizes there, having lost all of his money, having lost all of his friends, feeding the pigs in a foreign country, he realizes how far he's fallen. And so he says, I'm going to go home and I'm going to speak to my father and I'm going to say what it is that I've done and ask him if I might come back to be a servant in his house. And as he's returning, the father sees him far off because, of course, he's waiting for him. He's looking for him. He's longing for him. It's a beautiful story. It's a story about the father our Father, our Heavenly Father, in His home with His children. The older son represents 
the religious people who struggle to embrace the people on the margins, the people out of the mainstream, the people who have lived a life that is different from them. But of course, in the story, we always forget that there's a third son, the one who's telling the story. He's also a son of the father. And he paid the price for the prodigal to come home. And with wounded hands, takes the hand of the prodigal and brings him back to the father. The other son telling the story who, with wounded heart, is there with the older brother pleading with him to come home, put his rage and anger aside and welcome the lost child, long estranged, now back in the father's house. But there are three things that I think we need to note about what it is that the father does when that child who's been on the margins outside of the camp, beyond the pale, beyond the place of touching with the normal methods of kingdom activity. The one who comes back, the father says to those around him, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Put a robe on them. What's it, what's it like for a person who's been on the margins, who wants to be welcomed into your house church, into your household, who wants to be welcomed here on a Sunday, who wants to be welcomed here on a Tuesday for the prayer time? What is it that they need to know? They need to know that there's a robe for them, something that will make them safe, something that will surround them and protect them and provide for them. That this is a place of safety, that your house church is a place of safety. The ring, identifying the prodigal as a member of the family. The ring indicating that as well as being safe, they're significant. They're not below anybody else. They're equal with everyone and they wear the ring of being a child of the family. They're safe, they're significant. And then finally, the father says, put shoes on his feet because only slaves go without shoes in a home. They're free from the slavery that they've been subject to. See, these are, these are the things that we need to address if we're going to be serious about going to Jesus outside the camp, among the brokenhearted, 
among the alienated, among the sinners and the lost. The only way that we'll know how to do that is to watch the life of Jesus and imitate Him because given our own natural dispositions, we would find it difficult. But we watch Jesus and we follow Him and we hear the unspoken prayers and we see the invisible people and we welcome them back and we say, you're safe here. We say, you're significant here. You've, you've got things that you can do here. And here, you can be free from the slavery that you've known. This is not an easy thing for us to take on. But it is the journey of discipleship. Because being a disciple means following Jesus. And following Jesus means imitating his life. And imitating his life means doing it the way he did it. And will we struggle because of it? Well, if, any, if I'm anything to go by, yes. Is it worth it? All of heaven rejoices over just one that returns. So today, as you consider the invitation and challenge of being those who go to Jesus outside the camp, stand with him among the brokenhearted, among the lost and the lonely, as you consider being with him as he welcomes those from the margins and the edges back into the center of the life of his family as you journey with him to the edge and from the edge to the center. What is it that Jesus is addressing in you? Is it the anger of the elder brother who wants to remind Jesus of all that he's done for him and he doesn't think it's right that these people are considered equal with him? Is it anger? Is it a feeling of fear, of contamination that Simon felt that he might find himself becoming unclean because he's amongst the unclean rather than the way that Jesus did it, which is he makes clean everything that is unclean. What is the challenge in you today? Because if we're going to make this journey, if we're going to immerse ourselves in this call to discipleship, then the challenge will surely come and best to be forewarned because in that way we're forearmed. So as we respond today, my encouragement to you is to respond by bringing to Jesus the things 
that you want to offer to him that might prevent you from seeing and hearing the marginalized. Seeing and hearing the lost and the lonely. Seeing and hearing those on the edge, on the margins. What is it within us that would prevent us? And as you come and make that response, ask Jesus to help you. And if you are like the woman and you're unable to articulate what you need, then just know this. As you come, your prayer is heard. And as you come, the eloquence of that prayer will be heard in heaven.